0: Lord, thank you for the time that we can spend together this evening. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we we think about your word tonight, as we consider what it says and how it intersects with our lives. We pray that you would bring conviction and and strength, and that you would empower us by the Spirit to faithfully submit to the Word of God that does its work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is our second to last study. Tonight we're looking at the end of Micah 6 and the beginning of Micah 7, these two sections here. So we're in the third oracle. Last week, we, we started into the, the last section on judgment, and it was God making this case against his people. Uh, Micah sort of acting as the prosecuting attorney. And, uh, and this week... God is going to, in, uh, in the first section, in chapter 6, verses 9 to 16, He's going to sort of read out the judgment, the verdict against His people. And He's going to reiterate their crimes and then say, this is the judgment that's, that's coming on you. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, chapter 7 is sort of, uh, the whole chapter is uh, like a, a song that Micah composes. The first part, verses 1 to 6, is a lament for the corruption of God's people. So kind of on the heels of this judgment, it's like Micah uh, Micah bewailing how corrupt the people are. And then the rest of chapter 7 is saying, Micah saying, but this is who God is and this is what he's going to do, despite the fact that his people are so corrupt. So we'll look at that next week. But uh, the end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, for this week, uh, last a kind of big section on judgment that we're going to talk about and we'll talk about the, the good salvation part next week. Um, I gave you not only the questions, but hopefully you picked this up. I gave you a translation. This is mostly the New American Standard, which is what we normally use, but there are a couple places where I changed it. it <laughs> don't laugh. I didn't. I didn't. Cha- I didn't change it to just whatever I wanted it to be. So don't worry. Um, I changed it because I think there are some places where the New American Standard gets it wrong uh, in terms of the Hebrew translation, and it provides a somewhat unhelpful translation. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, today. That's not something to be afraid of, particularly when you when you read multiple different translations and you see that they vary. That means that. Uh, particularly in a place like this, it means the Hebrew is hard to translate. In fact, some of your Bibles will have footnotes uh, with these verses that will say, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain, right? So it means even the people who know Hebrew and their job is to translate the Bible say, this is kind of hard. So um, we're going to talk about that. Now, we have twice as many verses to get through as last week, So, And we're going to spend a little bit of time up front talking about this translation stuff. So um, it's going to feel like we are going a little bit slow, and then it's going to pick up speed really fast, all right? So we're, uh, yeah, let's just go. We have time. So there's a sense in which uh, at the end of last week in Micah 6, 8, that... uh, Micah 6, 8 is is stating what God requires of his people. It's almost another way of of summarizing the law, right? So, Jesus summarizes the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God is sort of a similar type summary. Um, It's it's saying the entire law is about this. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So if that's what the law is, if that's what God actually requires of his people, that's what he's telling them in, the, in, his, in his case against that he's presenting against them, saying this is what I've actually required of you, which is this is what I'm going to judge you against. If if Micah 6.8 is a summary of the the stipulations of the covenant that God's made with Israel, then... And that's what Israel will be judged against. And so now God is going to announce this judgment that he has on, uh, for his people. And there can be no cause for complaint. The people can't say that's not fair uh, because the people are so woefully out of line with God's standard uh, and they're failing on, on every count. There's no room for them to say this isn't fair. Well, how come you didn't tell us about this? And in fact, God can point back to specific places in the law consistently and say, no, you you knew about this. You just didn't care. So in uh, verse 9, it starts by God uh, announcing uh, this judgment to the people and, and calling them to pay attention to that judgment. All right? The voice of the Lord will call to the city, it's Jerusalem, and then this is sort of a parenthetical statement Mike is making, and it's sound wisdom to fear your name, which is sort of a way of saying, the voice of the Lord is calling, and you should listen. It's wisdom to fear God, and if you fear God, you'll listen to Him. So then this is what God says pay attention to the rod and who appointed it. Now, this is where we run into our first translation problem. Okay? So, if you, I, I looked at seven different translations and then I looked at the Hebrew. And every one of them has something a little bit different. So the New American Standard has, "Here, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Now, I like the New American Standard. It does a really good job, but here I think they, they miss it because the word time is not in Hebrew. It's not there. They've they've put that there. So they're they're making an assumption that this is what the author is talking about. So one of the problems with Hebrew poetry it's not a problem, it's a problem for us trying to understand it, but it's good Hebrew poetry, is they like to use as few words as possible. That makes good Hebrew poetry. So they cut out everything that's unnecessary and they leave a lot to be assumed by the reader, which if you're a native speaker is relatively easy. If you're not a native speaker, it makes it a little more challenging. And so I think the, the translators of the New American Standard are assuming, well, this is a word that they left out and that was supposed to be assumed, but I don't think that's, that's the case. Um, The uh, NRSV says, Hear, O tribe, and assembly of the city. Um, The New English translation, the Net Bible, says, Listen, O nation, and those assembled in the city. Uh, Again, they're assuming that the word that's left out there at the end is city. Um, Is that me? Okay. Usually it's me. Usually I say something and Siri pops up. Um, so you have, you have a couple problems. One, you have the, the, the end of the verse and it just ends with the word it. So that's, that's all that's there in Hebrew. It's the word it. So the, the New American Standard um, and the NRSV and the New English Translation are all inserting something at the end to make sense of well, what's it. Um, so who appointed it? So they say time, Or city, there's reasons they they do that. The other problem is uh, this word here, the rod. The word rod or staff uh, is the same word in Hebrew as the word tribe. So probably because the head of a tribe would carry a staff or something like that. So, um, so the only way so it can mean both, but it doesn't mean both at the same time. So we have to decide in context which one do we think it means, and so is it uh, the word uh, tribe, so pay attention to the tribe, or pay attention O tribe, or is it talking about uh, a rod or a staff, particularly in, in, in our context we'd be thinking rod would mean something like the rod of judgment, the rod that's used to, uh, to administer Judgment, And so the ESV, the, NI, the NIV, the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and the, the Lexham English Bible all have something like rod or staff. This, uh, so the ESV says, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Uh, the NIV says, heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Or the CSB says, pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. So I think that's closer. I think it, it actually does a better job of translating the Hebrew. Um, the Hebrew just says it's got the word hear or listen or pay attention and then the word rod and then and who appointed it. That's, and that's all it says in Hebrew. So uh, this right here that's my translation it's based on other translations that I looked at. So when you're studying the Bible and you come, because when I, when I first started looking at this in the New American Standard, I wasn't looking at Hebrew or anything like that, and I just saw, here, O tribe, who has appointed its time, I sat there and I said, what in the world does that mean? And so one of the first things I wanted to do is say, well, what are the other translations? How do the other translations translate it? Because that's going to give me a little bit more information It's going to help me to see without having to go and look at Hebrew because that's something that you all can do. You can go look at other translations and say, wait, okay, so now this one says this, this one says this, this one says this, and you start to get an idea of what the, the options are. And then you, you're not trying to pick your favorite one, but you want to you look at it and say, which one makes the most sense in context? Uh, so I think this makes the most sense. So I think the ESV, the NIV, the CSV, I think they, they get it uh, right. I think what this is, is uh, God calling to Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, pay attention to the judgment that is coming on you, and to me, the one who appointed it, right? Right? The, the judgment that God is bringing is not supposed to only be uh, retributive. It's not just supposed to be punishment for his people. It's supposed to be discipline. Discipline is, is formative, right? Discipline and disciple come from the same root. Discipline is not just uh, to, uh, to punish somebody. Discipline is to help to grow them and form them as well. So discipline can be used in a positive sense, right? We talk about spiritual disciplines. It's not spiritual punishment, although some people maybe feel that way. Um, Spiritual disciplines, like reading the Bible, praying, things like that, those are things that you're committed to to form yourself in the faith. So God's calling to Jerusalem saying, Pay attention to this discipline to why it's happening, to me. Pay attention to me. I'm the one who appointed this discipline. Another reason I think that this probably is speaking, uh, this uh, word ought to be translated as, as rod uh, is in, let's see if I can find it, in, in Isaiah 10:5 5, and uh, 24. So Isaiah 10, 5 and Isaiah 10, 24. Assyria... Is described as the rod of God's anger. Assyria is the rod, the tool that God is using to discipline his people. Isaiah and Micah prophesy at about the same time, and prophesy about very similar things. I mean you've seen as we've gone through the course of the study we've kind of gone back to Isaiah and shown how it's very similar. And so uh, God is perhaps calling on the people to pay attention to the advancing Assyrians who've conquered the northern kingdom, are ransacking Judah, and are coming to besiege Jerusalem. And that's his judgment. They, they're not complaining, well, God has abandoned us. It's like, no, God is bringing these people on you for judgment because of what you've done. Pay attention to the rod. And then verses 10 to 12 um, sort of explain why is this judgment coming on the people. And we've, we've addressed a lot of these issues uh, uh, over the course of, of the study. And so here we're reiterating again, Micah is showing again what is going on that is leading to this just judgment. So verse uh, 10 uh, verses 10 to 12 really in a lot of ways are sort of the anti- Micah 6, eight. It's the opposite of Micah 6.8. Instead of the people doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with their God, they're doing the exact opposite. So verse 10. Are there still a wicked house, storehouses or treasures of wickedness and in an accursed short or lean measure? or uh, a a short measure that is cursed, treasures, so the the word treasures uh, is also the word storehouses Um, the word short is uh, the word for lean or scant Um, so and then this first phrase, this is another translation uh, place now, I don't made a mistake i didn't list the other translations on here does somebody have the my my unadulterated uh or the unadulterated new American standard not my adulterated version um. what, NAS? yeah the nas yes. yeah please yeah so uh is there yet a man in the wicked house uh so uh, again, the word, the word man there is probably not in the Hebrew. Another problem with, with the Hebrew in, in terms of translation, which is difficult for us, is that Hebrew is written only in consonants. All right? So try reading uh, English only in consonants. You actually might be able to do it because we're really familiar with a lot of the words. But there's also going to be a lot of words where the consonants are the same as other words. And so you have to use context to determine which one is which. Uh, and so uh, we, we have a, a system of uh, vowels that were put in later and that preserved the traditional reading of the text. But uh, the actual scripture itself is written only in consonants. And so sometimes when there's something that doesn't make sense, they say, Let's take away the, the vowel points that go around all the Hebrew letters and say, what what could just the consonants mean? Would would repointing or revocalizing the Hebrew word in a different way uh, give us a, a different translation? Sometimes you'll see that at the bottom of your Bible. It will say uh, a revocalization of the Hebrew yields this or something along those lines. So um, <clears throat> there's other ways that this is this is translated. Some of them say something like, "Can I forget this?" That's results. Uh, it's a result of of um, having a, a different, some different vowels inserted into the Hebrew. Um, in any event, the, the idea is is this, and and so in in every translation, there's usually a this word still usually appears still or yet. So, is there yet uh, a man in the wicked house? So the word man, um, it's not there. It's, uh, I'm not going to ex- explain it. It's, it could be there, but I don't think it is, uh, depending on the way that you translate the Hebrew. The idea is God is saying to, uh, I, I think to the wicked house, I think that's the, that's the house of Israel, Right? This, this wicked house. Are there still a wicked house? So he's addressing the people. Are there still treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed these are sort of rhetorical questions God's asking to highlight the fact that despite the discipline and judgment that's coming on them uh, intended to bring them to repentance they're not turning back from their wickedness saying is there there still these things that I hate as a part of your society um Despite all the profits and all the discipline I've brought on you, are you still doing this? Uh, The treasures of wickedness or the storehouses of wickedness, are you still storing up the ill-gotten gains or the treasures of your wickedness? And then the short measure that is cursed. So it's literally it's a, a short ephah, so the measure, some of your translations may say this. Ifa, it's a, uh, a unit of measurement they would use in the marketplace. Um, so basically they're saying, are, are your scales weighted uh, so that when you're measuring out your products to sell to your neighbors, uh, you're charging them for a full measure and you're only giving them half? Right, it's like saying if we're, if we're selling grain or something like that in the marketplace and saying, "I'm gonna am I'm gonna charge you for a pound, but my scales are weighted, and so um, I'm actually only giving you three quarters of a pound, and so I'm I'm making I'm taking advantage of you, I'm making money on you." So, God's highlighting that part of the wickedness of His people is taking advantage of their neighbors. Right, they're they're stealing from them uh, by using these short measures and then they're storing up the excess that they're taking from their fellow man in their own houses then their storehouses of wickedness or their treasures of wickedness and then in verse 11 he asks another rhetorical question can i justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights so again he's highlighting that this practice was going on Jerusalem, and it's just an example of the wickedness of the people. People are supposed to love uh, or do justice, right? They're supposed to, with concern for their fellow person, treat them uh, in a way that God would treat them. They're not doing that. They're taking advantage of them, and this is actually um, specifically uh, condemned in Leviticus 19, 35, and 36 you shall do no wrong in judgment in measurement of weight or capacity. So This is in the law, he says, you will not wrong anybody in measuring the weight or capacity of things. You shall have just balances, just weights, and a just ephah, a just measure, and a just hin, which is another unit of weight. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. God's serious about this because it's reflective of the way that we treat other people. The way that we treat other people is reflective of the way that we think about God. This is a way that you expressed your love for your neighbor, not by cheating him. So the people are failing to do justice. Then verse 12, for the rich man of the city are are full of violence. Her residents speak lies and their tongue is is deceitful in their mouth. So not only are they failing to to do justice, they're also failing to love kindness. So rather than loving kindness, they're full of violence and deceit and lies. Rather than being faithfully uh, committed to other people, to, to, to loving what God loves and seeking the good of others, they are seeking Violence and deceit, I mean you think here these are breaches of commandments, right? not bearing false witness against your neighbor, not murdering this is the kind of thing that the people are are doing. but it's not only uh, the the rich men, it is the rich men, so the rich men of the city do this. Right? we talked about the the wealthy in chapter two taking advantage of the poor, but it's not just the wealthy because it's also just her residents. So the residents of the city are doing the same thing. They're speaking lies and their tongue is deceitful. It's not just the rich, it's everybody. This infects the entirety of society. So then, in verses 13 to 15, God reads his sentence. Right? If verses 10 to 12 describe the crimes that the people are still guilty of despite God's present disciplinary steps. He's been sending to them the prophets and rebuking them and calling them back to faithfulness, and the people still aren't listening. So then in verses 13 to 15, he describes the judgment that he's going to bring on them. Verse 13, So I will also make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat but you will not be satisfied and your vileness you will, uh, and your vileness will be in your midst you will try to remove uh, for safekeeping you will try to flee for safekeeping you will not preserve anything and what you do preserve I will give to the sword you will sow but you will not reap you will tread the olive but you will not anoint yourself with oil and the grapes but you will not drink wine we could spend a lot of time working through each one of these. But the big idea is this. We need, to, we need to compare this whole section with Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 33. And uh could also look at Deuteronomy 28, but especially Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is... The, the warnings about the, the covenant punishments, the covenant curses that God says, if you are not faithful to the covenant, this is what's going to happen. Um, the types of things that Micah describes here, uh, eating and not being satisfied, um, not being able to preserve anything, sowing but not reaping, Treading the olive but not anointing yourself. Uh, Treading the grapes and not drinking wine. These are all things that appear in Leviticus 26. Uh, Micah's describing God's judgment, or God through Micah is describing his judgment, and he's doing it in, in Leviticus terminology. It's supposed to highlight for the people that the punishment that they're receiving is not arbitrary, it's covenantal. It's because they've broken the covenant. God has already warned them about this. So it's calculated to help the people see that this is not just God saying, I don't like what you're doing. I just decided it today that I don't like this anymore, and so here's what I'm going to do with this random judgment. This is stuff that's been on the books for hundreds of years for Israel. They've known that it's coming, and yet they don't care because they're not walking with God. They loved their sin, more than God and their covenant with him. Verse 16 and really gets to the heart of the matter, right? Judgment has come on Israel, it would seem, because of their violence and their oppression and their injustice and this is seen this over and over again through the, through the book. Those are very practical kind of outward reasons why this judgment is coming. This is what's going on in the society Directly contrasting to doing justice and loving kindness. But the problem's deeper than that. Instead of walking humbly with their God, the people are guilty of gross idolatry. That's what we see in verse 16. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed and in their devices, you walk, okay? So compare that to 6-8. You're supposed to walk humbly with your God. What are you doing? Not that. You're walking in the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab. So this is uh, going back to 1 Kings 16. Omri and Ahab are father and son who are kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? So, Uh, 1 Kings 16, 23, uh, uh, 23 to 26. So that's actually 25 to 26. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him, which is pretty impressive because it was pretty wicked. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and his sins, which he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. So he's leading the people into idolatry. In the northern kingdom. This is hundreds of years before Micah's time. And then Omri dies. And then Ahab comes. Verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. More than all who were before him. As if Omri wasn't bad enough. Ahab does worse than his dad. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as if that was not a big thing for him to make Israel sin with idols. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So not only was he leading the nation into idolatry, he he was doing it, uh, in spades, he married uh, a pagan woman who was worshiping a false god and just said, I'm going to worship your god now. At the very least, um, Jeroboam and the other ones had claimed that uh, they were worshiping the god of Israel. They were just doing it with idols and sort of mixing in the Canaanite gods along the way. Ahab just says, I'm not going to worship the god of Israel. I'm going to worship Baal. So God says the problem in Israel, the problem in in Jerusalem, in Judah, in Micah's time, is not just that the people are violent and unjust, but that the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab are actually practices in Judah. Rather than walking humbly with God, the people are serving other gods and apparently doing so with some consistency. All the works of in the house of Ahab are are observed. That doesn't just mean seen, like somebody sees them. They're observed like they're, they're kept. Like we observe holidays and things like that, right? We observe it on a regular basis. We don't just see it, we're actually keeping it. They're carefully keeping these these works. And so, the The people's outward sin is is actually rooted in the people's inward sin. Just like last week, we talked about how if you are walking humbly with your God, right? If you are in in right relationship with God, you're going to love what He loves, and if you love what He loves, you'll do what He does, sort of the, the opposite way. You see the people not doing what God wants them to do. You see them not loving what God wants them to love, and that is actually pointing to the fact that inside... The people are not right with God. In fact, they're not worshiping him at all. At the root is a worship problem. It's not just not obeying the rules. It's rejecting God. So then God announces judgment again. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Ultimately, he's going to remove the people from the land, which, again, if you go back to Leviticus 26, you see at the end of the whole process of all these judgments coming, that's the last one. God says, if if we go through this whole thing and you still don't repent, I'm going to take you out of the land. That's exactly what he does. So then as we move into chapter 7... Micah begins this this lament, this this song uh, where he is uh, just weeping over uh, the the corruption of the people that's leading to this judgment. Verses 7 to 20 in chapter 7 will end up being a song of, of salvation and deliverance and trust in God who despite bringing judgment and discipline on his people will remain faithful not because his people have remained faithful but because that's his character but verses 1 to 6 are uh, Micah's lament song for the people you think him getting to the end of his ministry and seeing that the people are still just as wicked as they've always been Uh, actually uh, as a sort of a side note if Uh, Does anybody know the name John Foreman? John Foreman is the lead singer of Switchfoot. You probably recognize the band Switchfoot, maybe some of you. John Foreman has a song called Equally Skilled that is uh, basically just Micah seven, one to nine. Just, so anyway, if you're interested in listening to something like that, um, it's John Foreman and the song's Equally Skilled. You can just Google that and it'll come up. Uh, So in these verses, Micah is lamenting the the, the corruption of the people. So verse 1, Woe is me, for I am like like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a fist ripe fig which I crave. So uh, Micah starts with kind of this, this metaphor. He says, I'm like the fruit pickers. I'm, I'm like somebody who's coming to a vineyard to gather fruit but there's no fruit left right, if you ever go to pick apples in the in the, in the the fall my wife likes to go pick apples and we'll do that and if we don't go at the right time you have to go long and far into the orchard before you find a tree that still has apples that aren't just trodden over on the ground of course we're walking with my kids and my kids are like oh here's one on the ground it's like all mushy we're like no don't touch that uh, so Micah is like he gets to the, the orchard, he gets to the vineyard, and there's no fruit left on the trees. Like, well, what's he talking about? Well, verse two, uh, verse two really kind of explains verse one. And it's this figurative uh, image that's explaining what's what's actually happening. Um, Micah is lamenting that there's no one godly left in the land. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. And so, um, there's no one godly left in the land, and it's exhibited by the fact that the people in their relationship with one another, it's not characterized by love, it's characterized by hatred and taking advantage of one another, right? They're lying in wait for bloodshed. They're hunting one another with nets. Now, whether or not that... It's actually a, like people actually hunting other people. That may not be the case, but it's describing this, this violence and this hatred that people have for one another. So Micah feels like a fruit picker who's gotten to the vineyard too late. There's nothing left for him. The trees are picked bare. All the godly people have, have left. Everybody uh. is is pursuing evil and wickedness. Actually sounds quite a bit like the situation in Genesis 6 before the flood where everybody's hearts are set on evil. There's no one godly left in the land. Also sounds a little bit like um, in 1 Kings, I think it's 1 Kings 19 where uh, Elijah says the same thing. says, God, I've been so faithful to you and there's nobody left. I'm the only one. God says, that's not exactly true. So, is this, is this literal? Is there literally nobody left in the land that is following God? No, I don't think that that's the case. Because we actually see then some revival as we go from this time in Micah's life over the course of the next hundred years or so. There's people in the land who still love God, but the, the people are so utterly corrupt on a, on a large scale as a, as a, as a nation Mike, that Micah can look at them and look at the, the whole nation and say everyone is wicked and the reality is that like Paul says no one is righteous right? so uh, it's not that there aren't people who are attempting to be uh, obedient to the law and worship God the way that he uh, desires but it is not the norm sort of in the same way in Genesis 6 as it says everybody, uh, everybody's heart was set on evil continually but then it says but, but there was Noah Right? So it's not uh, completely exclusive. So in verse 3, Micah describes the, the people's wickedness more. It says, concerning evil, both hands do it well. They're ambidextrous evildoers. They're not limited, they're professional at doing wicked things, and they're equally skilled, there's the John Foreman song, at doing it in lots of different ways. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. So the the leaders, right? the political leaders, the judicial leaders, are asking for bribes. We've seen this kind of stuff already through the book. The leadership of the nations corrupt. They want to twist justice for their own ends. A great man speaks. Uh, that means uh, great meaning uh, uh, powerful. Speaks the desire of his soul. Uh, this uh, speaks might, might be better uh, for us. Be, uh, let's see if I can spell. Dictates. Um, a powerful person goes around dictating what he wants, pulling the strings to get it because he has the power to do it, right? Like we saw in, uh, earlier in the book of Micah where it says these people plan evil on their beds and when they arise, they do it because it's in their power to do so. And so they, they weave it together. They dictate what they want and then they conspire to do it like a, like a weaver putting together a piece of cloth. They're weaving together their corruption and wickedness to get what they want. Verse 4. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. Uh, this summarizes the people's condition. They're like thorns and briars. Right? That's not a compliment. Somebody calls you say you're kind of thorny. That's not a good thing, generally speaking. Um, Note uh, that this is, this is a very different description than the fruit that Michael was hoping to find, right? He's like a fruit picker. He's coming to find the godly people who are bearing fruit for God. What's he find instead? Thorns and briars. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment will come, and then their confusion will occur. Again, the New American Standard maybe over translates a little bit here. Um, I think it says something, again, I, of course, I didn't put it down. That would be too easy. Um, I think it says something along the lines of your, your, uh, the day when you set up your watchman or something, something along those lines. Who has the New American Standard? The day when you post your watchman, yeah. So po- post isn't in the Hebrew. I think that's, again, they're assuming that. And so they're probably reading it as saying, <clears throat> the day that you are actually going to put watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem, that's the day of, of judgment because this enemy army is coming. That's possible. Um, but it just says, the day of your watchmen. That's, the only, that's just what the Hebrew says, the day of your watchmen. And um, the watchmen may not necessarily be the actual guards of Jerusalem. It may be the prophets. Um, in in Ezekiel, let's see Ezekiel three seventeen and thirty three seven. God says to Ezekiel the prophet, "I've appointed you as a watchman for my people. Right? I've appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me." So watchmen are supposed to to look out and warn the people of of danger coming. That's what the prophets were doing. The prophets are supposed to listen to God and warn the people about what's coming. And the day of your watchman is probably something like the day that your watchman warned you about is here. The day the watchman were sounding the alarm about will come. That day, so it's the day of your watchman, and then it's put in parallel with this of your punishment. So the day of your watchman is the same thing as the day of your punishment. The day of your punishment will come and then their confusion will occur. The people will be thrown into confusion. And then verses 5 and 6 talking about the conditions of that day. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend from her who lies in In your bosom, guard your lips. For a son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own household. This lament for Judah's sins ends by describing the corruption and sinfulness of the people by showing just how pervasive the godlessness of the society is. It's led them... They have a fundamental inability to trust other people, even the people who are closest to them. So look at this. He progresses over the course of verses five and six to more and more intimate relationships that he says are being destroyed and damaged by this sinfulness. So you go from neighbor to friend to uh, her who lies in your bosom that's your wife spouse and then to the son and the father and the daughter and the mother going to the basic family units and now you may say well you know if you're married you say well my spouse is closer than my parents i don't you know this i, I wouldn't put parents as the at the inner circle of of uh, of intimate relationships but you got to remember, in this culture, your relationship with your parents was a, was a fundamental um, uh, picture into uh, the way that you thought about God, right? The fifth commandment, one of the ten commandments, is to honor your father and mother. That is not what's happening here. This is a big deal in, in Jewish culture and in, and in ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, culture for you for the for the breakdown of that family relationship. It's like showing that society is coming apart at the seams. Man's enemies are the men of his own household. The very place in which love should reign has become a battlefield because of human sin. So Micah laments that there's no one in the land who's godly and no one who can be trusted, and that's the the state of the people. The time that he's prophesying. Super encouraging. But he'll begin the final section of the book next week by saying that even though nobody can be trusted in the land, there's still one who can be trusted. And he will accomplish his work and his will and his people. So we'll look at that next week. So, Uh, You have the questions, and uh, next week, remember, is our last study. Uh, So it's going to be a rager. don't want to miss it. I'm just kidding. It's not. It's going to be very similar to this if if you still want to come. So all right. Uh, Yeah, so have a great discussion, and I'll see you guys next week.